Hi, and welcome to Redefining Outbound, a podcast series for sales leaders. I'm one of your hosts, David Bentham, Director of Sales Development at Cognizant. I'll be interviewing a range of forward-thinking sales leaders on how and why B2B buying behavior has changed, and we'll be unpacking why these trends are important for Outbound. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Redefining Outbound. Um, my name is David Bentham. Um, I'm the Sales Development Director at uh, Cognizum, and I'm really, really pleased to be um, here with Jen Allen Nooth. I hope it's I hope that it's a silent K. It's a canoe. It's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's a okay. canoe. Oh, yeah. okay. All right, all right. Well, there we go. To be honest, I get every single guest's um, <laughs> name wrong. That's how we start every show. So <laughs> it's another one to add. If you're playing Dave, does Dave Bentham bingo today, then uh, you've already got your first your first point. Um, but yeah, uh, Jen Alan Knuth um, from Lavender. Um, really, really excited to have you on, Jen. Um, the way we usually start is actually you introduce, because as you can see, I'm so bad at introducing people and <laughs> my guests. Um, so do you want to do you want to just tell um, the audience a little bit about yourself, um, who, you, who you are, where you come from, your story? Yeah, yeah. So um, Jen Allen Knuth, it's a new addition. I just got married recently, so I'm loving watching people struggle with it because Jen Allen was the easiest name ever, and now I'm actually putting people to the test. Um, I work at Lavender, which is an AI email coaching tool. Um, I actually just started here in January in a role in marketing, um, building out community. And prior to that, I spent the last 18 years as a frontline salesperson for CEB and Challenger. Challenger was the company behind the Challenger sale book. So I actually spent my entire career as a salesperson, and now I'm jumping over in the marketing pond. Wow. Well, I can't, I'm really looking forward to diving in, into that, um, and especially on the sales side, we, you know, this, this, um, these shows are all about outbound, outbound sales. So um, I think you, all of that experience should should come to the fore. Um, the way we always start outside of the intros is um, by asking the very simple question, um, what does redefining outbound mean to you? So I'd love to, to kind of hear your view on, on yeah, redefining outbound. Mm. I think we have all been spoiled rotten with all of these tools that allow us just to send so much outbound. Like largely if we look at it, it's kind of like a kid with a new toy, right? Like we just use that toy. We beat it to death until it actually doesn't do what it's supposed to do anymore. And I think that's what outbound has kind of come to these days. So when I think about redefining outbound, I think about honestly going back to the core of what makes humans want to talk to one another. It's feeling seen, heard, understood. It's we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later, but it's it's giving a shit, right? Giving a shit about what that business does, what might be hard and aiming to actually help as opposed to just aiming to just get meetings booked. Um, so that's what it means to me. Okay. Love that. Really love that. Um, so we've been doing a bit of digging on your LinkedIn profile. Um, and one thing that I've, uh, I, I speak to the Hills about is around um, my number one trait for, for great salespeople. And that's curiosity. Um, you know, they're always looking to, to improve, get better. Um, and you you mentioned in a post recently that the number one enemy in sales um, is kind of seller's ego or quiet ego. Um, so yeah, I would love to, to kind of hear a little bit more um, about that and and ultimately like how sales managers can influence the mindsets of their salespeople um, from the top down. 
Yeah. So when I say ego, I think it, the connotation is normally like that seller that's super, super like overconfident and I can't do anything wrong. It, that's not what I'm talking about. Like those people I think are easy to spot and see. What I'm talking about is kind of quiet ego. Quiet ego to me is the seller who maybe had a great quarter or had a great year and all of a sudden decides there's nothing left to learn, right? So when we're in a training session, we just sit there and we multitask. Or when someone's sharing a best practice that worked for them, we roll our eyes and think, well, here's all the reasons that won't work. Um, In my opinion, I spent, like I said, 18 years in sales. I would never refer to myself as an expert because sales moves and changes. Buyers change so rapidly. Even if you become an expert in one thing, the world around us changes so quickly. So I'm with you. Curiosity, not just about ourselves and what works and what doesn't, but also curiosity for the customer's business. So as an example, like one thing I would do every quarter is I would look back on the deals I won and lost every single quarter. And I would say, what are the common trends that I see? And what am I saying that is actually eliciting that response? And so I think just coming into sales, knowing that we're never going to be experts at it and just always being open-minded to changing the assumptions, belief that sit underneath what we decide to do. That's awesome. And do you have any advice for, you know, like, um, so, so, uh, Cognizant, we've got what 200 sellers 200 individual sellers and i think i think there's definitely individuals in there that are always you know seeking out self-learning and 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 taking on that mindset that, that you that made you so, so successful um is there ways that you've seen companies successfully operationalize that from the top um down yeah, I appreciate that question because one thing I've spent my entire career selling to sales organizations, and one stark difference I see between high performing and low performing organizations is the culture around safety of admission of mistakes. So, what I mean by that is if I, as a salesperson, am scared shitless to admit that I got something wrong or something bad happened, I am going to be extremely fearful of opening up and asking for help. And unfortunately, I think leadership often sets a negative tone to make it safe. So one of the things that I actually saw one of my customers doing that I loved was instead of just focusing on highlighting wins, they do a monthly loss analysis. And they say, we're not here to judge. We are not here to criticize. We're not here to say, oh, you should have obviously done this. What we are here to do is learn deeply from why we lose when we lose. And if we can do that as a team, and if we can all agree to say we're not going to be critical and judgmental, but we're just going to go in with the intent of learning, that's the type of thing that I set, think sets the right tone to make it safe for sellers to admit when they're struggling something. So things like that that are really geared at learning from mistakes instead of just criticizing mistakes, I think go a long way. Hmm. I love that answer. There's actually a fantastic book, um, by Matthew Said, I think it is. I probably butchered his name as well, called Black Box Thinking. Um, and it's exactly around that. It's around, you know, the, the black box in airplanes and how like safe airplanes like or you know air travels become as a result versus industries. He actually used the example of of the you know, hospitals where um and I don't want to ruin the book, but you should, everybody should read it. Uh, hospitals where there's not really been, you know, mistakes happen, but obviously doctors are protected for, for kind of like, you know, human reasons. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, is like, you know, the the hospitals aren't necessarily becoming safer as a result because nobody's talking about these these mistakes. So, yeah, if, if anybody's like, if anybody wants to, um, it's a big book recommendation of mine because um, as a leader, I think the first thing that I 
took away from that was was kind of creating loads of feedback sessions from the team and not being afraid to, to like hear hear from them all the negatives or seeking out the negative feedback more than the positive feedback to be honest um so yeah absolutely absolutely love that um so the the other thing that you know i, I read um through your linkedin profile um was your um gas selling <laughs> methodology um real I, I mean like i don't know whether i want to spoil it but maybe i should like it's um so gas for anybody that hasn't seen it stands for give a shit um selling um and um i i yeah would love to to kind of like hear all about it um and it, i suppose one of the points was around step three um and about like how you can give a shit about uh outbound emails um, and personalization at scale, which is something that we talk about all the time. So yeah, look, I'm, the floor's you, yours on that one. <laughs> well, give a shit methodology was totally tongue in cheek. I was just sitting there thinking about, gosh, if I were to create a methodology, and I grew up around Challenger, obviously, so it's largely influenced by that. But if I were to create a methodology, I think sometimes we just totally overcomplicate the unimportant things in sales and we tend to undervalue the things that truly matter. So it was just me kind of saying like, here are the things I think actually matter in sales that I wish we would be teaching salespeople. But as it relates to number three, um, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I think it's, you know, I, I can't fault SDRs and AEs. It is really easy to pursue a strategy of more and more meaning like just make more dials, send more emails, do more, you know, LinkedIn DMs. Like, it is easier to do that today because of technology. And I understand why people fall into that trap. Often they fall into that trap because they are being walked into that trap by leadership. However, um, one thing that has always stood out to me as a differentiator is when you actually take the time to give a shit about the person's business that you are emailing. Like, if I think back 15 years ago where LinkedIn wasn't what it was today, we didn't have as many podcasts and webinars. I could understand if you write an email and you're like, I'm just making my best guess. I don't know. Today, it's inexcusable. Like if I Google, if I'm targeting a company and I'm, you know, and it's a top tier company, I can Google the CEO's name and podcast or CEO's name and interview. And I can literally listen to the dude or gal list off what's important to them and what they're trying to achieve. And so in my opinion, if we as salespeople don't take the responsibility to actually take the time to try to learn and come with a point of view or some hypothesis, I just think it's lazy selling. And I think that's that's what I mean by give a shit. It's just give a shit not just to hit our number, give a shit to actually care about what might be hard for this person and, and what do we know that they may not that we can help them with. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And do, do you have like um advice on what that balance looks like? Because I think that's what a lot, you know, that's what I hear a lot from, from you know, my team when I'm talking about like, you know, I want them to personalize, but I also need them to, you know, like we have an activity KPI to make sure that there's, they are pushing. So like, is there, you know, if you, from your size um, and, and potentially advice for leaders, like, is there, is there a, a rough balance that you see? Like, where do you, where do you draw that line between quantity and, and quality? Yeah. I mean, I'm so in the quality camp for sure. Um, okay. And I will say I recognize that it's not always like n not everybody's going to send a completely perfect email to every prospect. It's just not reasonable for some, like if I'm selling to SMB maybe, or, you know, if I'm selling into a really specific niche. Um, so I'm not saying it has to be every single email, but even when we are doing a cadence or a sequence or something like that, 
we should deeply understand the persona that we're selling to. So maybe it doesn't have to be completely tailored to their particular business and drop some amazing insight in there, but we still should be leading with some sort of unique point of view and an empathetic tone around why that thing might be hard in their business. I just don't see a lot of sales organizations prioritizing that, right? It's like you see a lot of messages that are like, as a VP of sales, you're probably this. And it's like, that, that to me is an alienating, right? Like if I'm a VP of sales and you lump me in with all other VP of sales, what am I going to do? I'm going to push back and reject. Like I'm unique. I'm a special flower. I'm special because. And so I think we just have to be really mindful about how we're teaching our our sellers, our SDRs, our front lines to communicate with people so that they still feel seen and heard, even if they are part of a sequence. Mm. Okay. And do you, do you think like email automation is dying then? Is it going to, you know, is there is there a place for it anymore? I definitely think there's a place for it when used responsibly, right? Irresponsible usage where I'm just going to blast everybody about who we are and why we're number one and what makes our solutions great and all of our case studies and all the logos we work with to me is irresponsible because it's totally self-obsessed. I use this analogy. It's not unique to me. Lots of people talk about this, but about dating, right? If I went on Tinder and Bumble and I just blasted every single connection with like how many sit-ups I can do and like the fact that I won the fifth grade spelling bee and, you know, I, my friends think I'm funny, no one would want to talk to me. Everyone would no, be that's, like, that's You're what I'm doing wrong. Right. <laughs> but we do this in sales all the time. We send these totally self-centered emails. So I don't think it's, I don't think sequences, cadences, automation is bad, but I think we have to be responsible when we're using it to say, are we actually saying something that matters? Are we saying something helpful to someone who's struggling or are we just going in and talking all about ourselves? Awesome. Um, you, in that methodology, you, um, in step, step four is all about inaction and the cost of it. So mm -hmm. can you elaborate on that for, for, for the audience? Um, a little yeah. Bit? So I think most of us, when we learned how to sell, we were all taught that people buy because you have a better solution, right? Like I have a 15-time ROI. I'm going to save you all this time and money. And so naturally, that's what we as salespeople often go in and try to convince people. But I think what a lot of us have seen is I can go in and say, hey, Dave, I, I can give you a 15-time ROI on this. And you'll look at me and you'll say, you're right. This is a better way of solving the problem that we're doing right now. But the reality is we've cut costs. We've cut people. There's no way I'm going to take this to my CFO because I'm, I'm trying to avoid risk. I'm trying to avoid unnecessary change. So I think what we're finding ourselves in is this environment where ROI still has a role and a place. Like You still need to be credible that you're the right partner to work with. But I just see way too many sellers using ROI early to try to convince someone to change when in reality, we as humans we make stupid decisions all day long about things that are better for us to do that we don't do. So cost of inaction is really saying, forget about what happens if you do something. What happens if you do nothing? What is the true cost of doing nothing that that customer probably doesn't appreciate? Okay. Interesting. And, and like, how are you like from very tactically, like how, how are you bringing that up um, to, to your prospects? Are you, are you literally saying that, are you asking that exact question? Like what would happen if, if not? nothing changes? No, because they would say nothing. It's fine, right? Like we as humans, we don't want to believe that things are as bad as they are. We constantly try to find the positive, right? Which is a good thing about humanity, but a bad thing for salespeople. So what I do is I help do the math for them, right? So I, as an outsider to an organization, cannot say, hey, this problem is costing you exactly this, but I can give you a formula. So as an example, one of the things when I was at Challenger and I was selling, I would do is I would say, okay, 
All the research we've done shows that on average, you're losing 38% of your deals to status quo. So let's look at your own business, right? What is the total revenue cost of 38%, right? So like take your pipeline and apply that. Now, what is one single thing that can get you that much pipeline back other than solving for that, right? It's not beating your competitors. It's not price. It's not any of this. It is unlocking how do we stop losing deals that aren't no's, but they're not yeses. And so by giving them formulas, another one was like, look at your pipeline and see how many opportunities haven't had a conversation with a sales rep in the last 60 days. That's your status quo pipeline, right? And I had a client come back and say, we did this and it was $90 million of pipeline. Like, holy shit, we have a problem and we didn't realize it. So like, that's the moment I want. I want to give them the, the, the formula and have them come to the realization that, man, this problem is bigger than I realized. That's awesome. I really, really love that. Yeah, I think um, I think we've been guilty internally of, of kind of just asking that question. And you're absolutely right. People just go, well, no, it's it's, it's not a problem at all. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, I think we definitely need to start putting that, like working out how to get get the information to put it in our decks. In fact, I, like one thing that we we talk about quite often here is like, especially thinking about outbound is like who you're outbounding to. Um for that kind of information that you just mentioned, like, is, could you get that off of like people that aren't the decision maker, aren't your prospect as well? Like, uh, you know, are you are you are you speaking to like others or or like yeah? How how do you, how how else can you find out that information? I love that you asked this question. I think this is such a move that's underutilized right now. So we've always been taught as salespeople, right? Like what have we always heard? Go to the decision maker, get to the decision maker. And then we go there and we have like little to no information except what we can find publicly. One of the things that we started doing a couple of years ago was actually recognizing that you can have such a sharper message to the decision maker if you spend time with those that one, don't even get cold calls. Like for me, it was reaching out to salespeople. And so if I had a big account that I was targeting the CSO, I would call on salespeople that I saw were active on LinkedIn and I would be like, hey, I saw you posting, like, this is really interesting. I really like your opinion here. I'm curious. I'm looking at you guys as a potential opportunity. I'm not going to share this with anybody, but help me understand of all the reasons that you lose, is it competition? Is it price? Is it timing? Is it what? Right. And then I would have a few of those conversations. So I myself could understand, is this even an opportunity that has the problem that we solve for? Mm. And then what I would do is I wouldn't be like, Debbie said she loses all the time to this because that's a great way to break trust. But I would say I spent some time with the front line. And one of the common themes I'm hearing is that sellers aren't losing to price or competition. They're losing to timing and they're losing to budget. And these are just manufactured words for status quo. So curious, would you be open to hearing how other companies are defeating status quo? And so it just allowed me to be one, more confident, but two, personalize it in a way that's like, I'm not guessing that this is a problem. I actually know from conversations it is. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. I think it's a it's a tactic a lot of sellers are not using. Mm, I love the way that you you say like I, I spoke into the front line. We to be honest, I've uh, again like it's something that I need to test. I'm I've never been a I, I've kind of just name dropped people to to be really honest. But the danger of doing that is then they they come back and they go, oh well, that person doesn't know, right? Because like <laughs> you've you've actually spoken to the weakest performer in the team or something. So right, um, exactly. Like, yeah, putting putting that label on it, like I think is is a really nice way of doing it. Um, we obviously just like an element of multi-threading there, but I want to speak more about multi-threading because I think one thing we're seeing at Cognizant is um, previously perhaps like our product could be bought by middle managers. And I'm sure there's lots of 
lots of the audience that that are feeling this as well where like yeah previously like what maybe you know we could speak to one or two people and actually they could get sign off uh pretty easily but now like you know macroeconomic forces everything that goes like that's going on um we're seeing more and more people being needing to be added to the process to get things over the line so you in your methodology you speak about um uh you know like how important it is to 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 basically frame in order to grab other people into that conversation would love to to, to kind of dive into that um and you know and and why it's so important your side yeah so i will be very honest with the fact that like i lost a ton of deals to lack of consensus and that's what forced my hand to figure out i've got to figure out a different play because what i'm doing isn't working so if you look at the research right when i was at challenger one of the things we studied was how many people on average on the customer side are getting involved in a deal and from 2015 to 2020 the number jumped from 5.4 to 11.2 and that's before covid right? So it's like COVID was a whole nother risk event. We just went through the SVB crisis. Like it's a whole nother risk event. So I think we can assume that that number is just going to continue to rise because people are saying, I don't want to be the single person that said, buy this thing. Because then if it doesn't work, it's my neck on the line, right? So it's like this nature of a, of a customer to say, I'm just going to get everybody's opinions that if it fails, I can be like, all y'all were on this bus. Like it wasn't just me. And so I think one of the things we have to be mindful of is when a stakeholder, a champion that wants to buy what we buy or what we have to sell, if they go back to the rest of that buying group who has not been involved in the conversation, that buying group lacks complete context as to why this solution should even be prioritized. And so I think as sellers, we actually have to be the ones to slow down our champions to say, I know you're now so excited to shop this around and you want to go to everybody and say, let's buy lavender, let's buy cognizant. Like, like, I know that, right? And I'm, ex- I'm just as excited as you are. But what we need to do is back the team up and get them to agree that this is even the right problem to solve first. And so I'll actually write the note for the, the champion to say, you know, I spent time with Jen. She has some unique observations on this problem that we've been up against. Anybody have any issues with us coming together and and talking about what we've seen as it relates to the problem happening here? And it's problem-centric. It's not solution-centric because if someone's going to buy a solution, they have to believe that the problem is important. Um, and I think that's where we often fall down. And so then in that group meeting, again, patience. I'm not saying, here, let me tell you all about Lavender and why it's great. I'm actually backing them up to say, when I spoke with these two people, this is how they articulated the problem. I want y'all to disagree to this. Where do you see it differently? What do you think is more important? And I want them to do that with me as opposed to like I show them their solution and then they go behind closed doors and then they talk about whether or not it's important. Mm -hmm. And I think when we stay true to that and we don't try to convince groups of people, you should buy my thing, we end up being pulled into that group because we're val- added, like we're adding value to it. We're helping them facilitate a constructive conversation. And so I think it totally changes the game for what we as sell- salespeople need to be doing when we're selling to buying groups instead of buying individuals. That's brilliant. The the element of control, like from the buy- like from the seller side, is 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 so incredibly important. And uh, yeah, I, I, like so how. I suppose the, my follow-up question to that is really like, how would you do that without feeling like you're stepping on the toe or like uh, without your champion or your pros- your, the person you have spoken to feeling like you're treading on their toes? Yeah. So I think it's all about making the person look good. So I think this is where we as sellers need to be, be more confident taking control because while that person believes they know the best way to buy our product, nobody knows that better than us. 
right? We've seen it all. We've heard it all. And I think that's where we have to say empathetically, like, look, I know you're as excited about moving this forward, but here's where I've seen these deals go off the rails. And I don't want that to happen to you. So with your permission, I'd like to propose we do this, this, and this. How do you see it differently? Right? And I think by having a confident tone and showing someone I've done this before, that's what a buyer wants. Like as a buyer now, I want to know that someone's going to tell me where this thing gets hard. If a seller's like, it's super easy. Everyone's going to love it. Everything's great. I'm like, this person is either brand new or they just like <laughs> are flat out lying to me. So I think people like buyers appreciate that notion of commercial coaching. And I think as long as you make them feel like you're right next to them instead of you're above them, that's where it plays really well. Because buying sucks. Buying's hard. They want the help as long as we're being helpful from their point of view, not just helpful for getting ourselves to goal. Awesome. And um, final piece on on multi-threading, you know, similar to the question I asked at the top of this, um, just around like how leaders can operationalize these kind of things. Have you seen or, or like um, done yourself any like really great tactics for making sure like from a management standpoint and making sure that your, your sellers are, are multi-threading in the best way possible? Yeah, great question. So I think um, deal reviews are the place where I think it's most helpful for managers to be consistent. So if you go into a deal review with your manager and every single time you go to one, they're asking you different questions and it's all about what you're doing, you can get away with not multi-threading, right? Versus if I go to a deal review and every single time it's the same set of questions. So I am learning what behavior is expected of me. And some of those questions are about who are the 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 11.2 people in our deal. Now you might have a deal where there's like three people or there's four people, right? It might truly be selling to like a mom and a pop or a small business. But know your average for your deals and then push your sellers to say, okay, you've talked about two stakeholders here, but on average we typically see there's six or seven. So who else feasibly might want to get involved here. Who else probably at some point will want to get involved and enforce the, the the hand, right? Because we as sellers, we're always going to defend like, no, 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 I'm doing it right. I'm doing it good. I'm doing it good. But if we just take our own data and we push that back on sellers and say, they may not get involved, but why would we want to play the cards that way and encourage them to consider constantly who else needs to be involved in this? I'll tell you a company that does this really um, well, it usually is gong, right? They like look around and they're like, okay, these are all the people that might have a say in it. And they're very, very proactive about getting ahead of that. And so just being mindful of that and as a manager coaching to it versus just like, hey, it's happening. What do we do now that it's happened? Mm. And this, I'm going to give a small shout out to gong because they, we, we're gong customers and they actually have in their tool suite, like options to help recognize the lack of multi-threading so um they're yes. probably so successful at it because because of the 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 product that they they sell so um small shout out to gong there um <laughs> jen thank you so much uh, for today um and, and for the session ever like so so enlightening um great uh, fantastic points around sales and also improvement to my dating game which has clearly gone wrong so far um so it's a you know it's a real win a personal win for me that's for sure um um jen do you, do you want to just just before we wrap up completely um t tell us about lavender and 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 if anybody's interested in in lavender at all like w where they should go to 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 take a look yeah. So I think it, it goes back to the question you asked in the beginning, which is redefining outbound. Like, how do we think differently about it? The thing that made me come to Lavender, because like I said, I spent 18 years with the company and then I came here doing a totally different job. 
was the fact that I believe they are really helping salespeople stop sending mindless emails. So if you want to check out Lavender, think of it as kind of like a manager that's in your inbox and it's coaching you to say, hey, that sentence is too long. That word is too big. Um, This is a cliche. It's going to make it sound like a sales email and it's grading you as you go and you write it. So even as someone who sold as long as I have, I still get B's and C's on this thing all the time and I rely on it to help me write outreach that doesn't suck. So check it out at lavender.ai. You can actually try it for free for seven days. Awesome. And then uh, for anybody looking to follow you, like where, where should they find you? Yeah, so... I've done one TikTok. I never give out my handle. If someone can find me, they're like a super sleuth. Um, I'm all about <laughs> LinkedIn. So Jen Allen Knuth on LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. Jen, thank you so much again uh, for your time. And um, yeah, for everybody listening, thank you for joining us. Um, and I'll, I'm sure and hopefully we'll see you again on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. much. Cheers.